What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Annabelle Huang is a partner at Amber Group, a leading crypto finance service provider. She previously served as the Asia lead at AirSwap and structured FX work at Nomura and Deutsche Bank. In this conversation, we discuss the crypto industry in Asia, the rise of institutional interest, digital payments, decentralization versus centralization, and privacy-centric technology. I really enjoyed this conversation with Annabella, and I hope that you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Exodus. They are leading the world out of the traditional financial system by building beautiful and user-friendly blockchain products. With its focus on design and user experience, Exodus has become one of the most popular and loved cryptocurrency apps. It's supported on both desktop and mobile, allowing you to sync your wallet across multiple devices so you can have access to your funds anywhere. You can instantly exchange around 100 different cryptocurrencies straight from your wallet. Interactive charts let you view an asset's price history and your portfolio's performance over time. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with the Treasure Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. You can go check out Exodus, one of, if not the absolute best ways for you to hold your cryptocurrencies across different apps by going to exodus.com for your free download or search Exodus on the App Store or the Play Store. Again, exodus.com for your free download or search Exodus, E-X-O-D-U-S, Exodus on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Next up is Diginex. Diginex is the first company with a cryptocurrency exchange to be listed in the United States. Their ticker on NASDAQ is EQOS, EQOS, and they are the first crypto company that you can buy stock in. They also have a crypto exchange called Equos, E-Q-U-O-S, which has been built to institutional standards but is available to everyone. On that exchange, you can trade Bitcoin and Ethereum spot as well as Bitcoin perpetuals, and you will get a 5% discount on all fees by signing up using equos.com slash pomp. That's E-Q-U-O-S dot com slash pomp, equos.com com slash pop. Go check it out. Diginex, the first company with a crypto exchange to be listed in the U.S. under the ticker symbol EQOS on NASDAQ. Lastly is Money on Chain. They are bringing Bitcoin to mass adoption with solutions to meet the needs of different types of users. They have a fully Bitcoin collateralized stablecoin called DOC. They have a Bitcoin on steroids, B Pro, and a dizzying Bitcoiner option for lovers of leverage trading, BTCX. All of this without requiring the delivery of private keys. That's right. You can use all of this and you don't have to give them your private keys. So it is dead on with the ethos of Bitcoin. Money on chain. Wow, my voice just cracked. Money on chain, bringing Bitcoin into the mainstream. You can visit them at moneyonchain.com slash pomp to learn more. Again, moneyonchain.com slash pomp to learn more. DeFi is definitely for Bitcoiners with money on chain. All right, let's get into this episode with Annabelle. I hope you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Annabelle here. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Thanks for having me. 
for sure. Uh, you are sitting on the other side of the world in uh, China right now, um, and you've had a very kind of unique background in that you worked in the legacy world and now work in crypto. Walk us through just where did you grow up? How did you get into finance originally? And then why transition to a uh, crypto industry? Sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Annabelle Hong, and I'm a partner at Amber Group. So a little bit about my background. I was born and raised in China, then went to the States for college. So I went to Carnegie Mellon and studied math and finance. And, you know, I just went into the traditional finance world because that was what makes the most sense given my background. And, um, and then I did um, FX structuring in New York uh, for Deutsche Bank and then Nomura for a number of years. And that really gave me insight into how traditional markets work um, and in FX, um, you know, the, the trading style and um, got to know a lot of the top institutional clients on the back of it as well. But after a few years, I just felt like, you know, maybe, you know, I could spend another 10 years being on the same trading floor doing kind of similar deals. Um, but what else or where is growth? And I've always been interested in crypto or Bitcoin, actually, um, from when I was in college. A lot of my computer science friends were telling me, oh, my gosh, look at this new distributed system and, you know, crypt, uh, on the crypto side. And I took a look at the white paper and I was more interested in the, I guess, in the new way that economics could work uh, in a decentralized fashion and the game theory behind it, uh, behind a consensus mechanism that enabled a truly trustless system for everybody in the world to participate in. So I thought that was really genius, uh, but never really considered it as a full-time career until 2018, when a few of my Carnegie Mellon alums reached out. So they were building a decentralized exchange uh, on Ethereum, and they were working with consensus. Uh, it's called AirSwap. It's a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer trading venue. And, you know, I, I really liked the team and, uh, and joined them, moved to Asia, moved to Hong Kong to lead Asia Extension for them and really approached crypto uh, from more of a um, layer two protocol or more of a technology and product point of view, as opposed to I see a lot of my peers in finance, traditional finance, who moved to crypto, um, mostly trading Bitcoin or you know, other crypto as an asset class and didn't really get to know the underlying technology behind it. I really see DeFi or, or blockchain as the, you know, that, that it really revolutionized finance and technology as we know it. So that was really exciting for me. And um, you know, really decided to to go into it full time. And after spending a year um, in in DeFi world, and that was back in 2018, right? Nothing like what we saw last year in 2020. Um, so the user experience is poor because the underlying tech is still quite nascent, and there's no really liquidity anywhere. Um, so I decided to join Amber. Um, which is a crypto finance company based in Hong Kong. And it's really more of a global platform being at both the intersection of DeFi and CeFi. Um, so you really get to see a lot more market activity, um, got to service more clients from there. Um, and I really clicked with just with the Amber co-founders. Uh, we all had really similar backgrounds, um, born and raised in China, went to school in the States or, or uh, the UK. 
uh, worked on Wall Street for a few years and then really just saw crypto for its potential. Um, that's why, and we all pivoted to, to crypto full time. Yeah. I, I love it. And so when you think about Amber Group today, what does the product suite look like and kind of what are you guys trying to accomplish? Right. So Amber Group was started in 2017 and there was a bunch of, um, you know, FX traders, et cetera, on Wall Street. And when we started, it was initially just a, a sales and trading style desk where we have traders on the desk, everything we're servicing. Um, we're servicing our institutional clients offline through our, through our you know, traders. And, and in 2019, that was about almost three years of servicing um, high net worth individuals and the institutional clients in the space. And that's when we realized that we really saw the need to digitize and platformize a lot of our offerings because people are used to you know, maybe making a trade uh, on a website or on their phone. So um, that's when we built our first product uh, called Amber Pro, which is a web end portal. And then it offers trading functions uh, as well as some um, time deposit. So where you can earn on your collateral as well. And in 2020, that's when we um, launched our second product, the Amber app, uh, which is a mobile app that's easier to use, more designed for people new to the space. Um, that's also when we saw all influx of actually both institutional and retail investors from the traditional space come into crypto um, on the back of this uh, amazing rally. Um, so yeah, with our product suite, uh, whether the website or our trading desk offline or our Amber app, we really aim to serve a various, a variety of uh, clients, um, maybe they're new or maybe they're more like crypto OG. So uh, whoever they can find um, something that's relevant for them. And we aim to be the gateway to crypto finance for more people to, to come to the space. Um, and because we really believe in it, we believe that people, more users can really capture long-term value from the world of crypto finance. Absolutely. So you're based now in uh, in Asia. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what is the crypto scene like in Asia? Uh, what is kind of different than the United States? What is similar to uh, the United States or North America uh, when you think of those two different geographies? Yeah, it is quite in interesting. Um, so I first um, got involved in crypto in in New York, and then it was very, um, it's a very different crowd than what you see here in Hong Kong and the rest of, of Asia. Um, I would say in New York uh, or in the U.S. in general, I think people are, um, a lot of projects, they're focused more on R&D, um, building out different techs. We see, um, even with last year, uh, the whole DeFi boom, right, most of the innovation are coming from, from the states. Um, and then there are people building different um, different uh, chains out there and different blockchains out there other than Ethereum um, versus in, in Asia or I guess in, in China. First of all, it's very casual business driven. So you see a lot of exchanges based in Asia, a lot of miners, um, and a lot of trading shops just because I guess those are the more um, you know readily cash flow driven businesses. Um, but one thing I, I do feel, you know, the biggest difference is, is just the, the, the sentiment um, and the drive uh, of 
people. Like I think in the States, um, just because there are a lot of regulatory constraints and concerns, people sometimes are more hesitant towards driving business forward. But in Asia, I think people are more eager to, to, you know, to test things out, to get things going on the ground. So we do see, um, you know, a lot of early adopters coming from Asia. Maybe the tech came from the States, but I think a lot of people are more eager to participate in the ecosystem um, from, from Asia. So that I think it's a great combination. Um, I, I, I think... Um, Again, taking DeFi as an example, last year, right, a lot of the liquidity mining programs or yield farming programs, um, I think it is driven from innovation uh, from the states, but we see a lot of participants from Asia and that really brought the ecosystem and bought a community forward. So, so yeah, it's quite interesting um, to see that dynamic. For sure. And, and so when you think through um, in the Asian market specifically, it, what is the advantage? Is it uh, a certain type of regulatory regime? Is it a certain type of founder? Um, maybe is it some sort of uh, cultural um, kind of framework or, or experience that people have as to why there's certain types of uh, projects and, and um, kind of innovations that happen in Asia versus North America? Like, it, Is there any kind of uh, answer to like, why is it different? Um, I think... I think mentality culturally, maybe. I think um, I think we, we see in Asia, I guess in Korea and Japan, it is hard for people to find yield anywhere, especially like I guess in Japan, right? All the yields are, are negative. And I think people are, are perhaps more inclined to, to find yield opportunities and more um, acceptable to, to new, new things. Um, so that's why I think the crypto adoption in Korea and Japan um, are among the highest in the world. And I think in China, just because um, we have seen a incredible decade of the boom in, in internet product itself. So I think a lot of people are leveraging that experience right, from um, you know, the Tencent, Alibaba's, et cetera, and leveraging that um, and applying it to crypto to build um, more products like exchanges or or wallets, um, or uh, more crypto finance um, service servicing apps. Um, so I think you do see you do see that. I think first of all, people are more eager to to do things. More they're they're more open to accept new things. Um, and I think regulatory uh, constraints definitely play a role. Um, you see you see with Japan, right? They they were really active in crypto, and now with more stringent regular um, regulatory um, requirements in place. I think that activity has since, um, you know, died down a, a little bit. Um, but I think everybody, obviously in Asia, are still cognizant of, of the regulatory requirements. But I think they're just more willing to to test out new things. Absolutely. And so when you look at the user base uh, in Asia, it feels like um, there was a massive advantage in terms of just the digital economy already, right? Whether it was gaming or, or other pieces to it. Um, forget crypto for a second, like help people understand like what else is going on in the digital economy uh, in these Asian uh, regions that uh, give people kind of a, a, um, a predisposition to something like crypto and maybe a little bit more trust, a little bit more open-mindedness. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, first of all, I think within Asia and China is leading this whole um, growth, right, that we skipped the whole 
desktop phase and went straight to smartphones, went straight to mobile. So everybody here has a mobile phone, smartphone. Um, you, I don't carry physical cash with me anymore. Everywhere I go, you scan a QR code and you pay and you transfer all digitally. And um, it's, it's quite interesting, actually, when I first um, returned to Asia and I didn't even have my Alipay or WeChat Pay set up and I was trying to just pay my cab and then he didn't want to accept my cash. He said, you know, I just, just go. <laughs> and I felt like, wow, <laughs> they just really don't. You know, the, the whole, um, the, the user behavior here is so different now. Um, just, you know, on the back of the whole smartphone and, and the pro internet product development. And, and that perhaps give people, um, like you said, we're more disposition uh, into using things that are digital. Um, people buy things online now. Everything is done through mobile apps. Um, every little thing. And um, I think payment is perhaps the most different because uh, in the States, you, people still pay with their credit cards and all that. But here, you know, there's no cards, no physical cash. It's all done on the app. And um, the Chinese government is also pushing out um, digital currency, right? We call it DSAP. Um, and they have run trials in Shenzhen and now in Beijing, um, pushing out um, on, on a national scale, um, a government scale that, you know, everybody should just use eCNY. Um, so that is, a, that would be quite interesting to see. Absolutely. And so when you think through um, those digital payments, uh, is that actually a hurdle for crypto adoption in terms of uh, what's the difference between spending the digital um, currency via like an Alipay or something like that? What's the difference between, let's say, the Chinese government's uh, kind of digital central bank currency uh, or crypto? Like those three things, the user experience seems pretty similar. It's actually like this underpinning technology that may be different um, and, and who controls it was it centralized, decentralized. Um, so is that like a benefit and a tailwind uh, for crypto adoption, or is that actually a headwind and potentially a, an obstacle in your opinion? That's a, that's a great question. Right? I think I think it is a bit of both ways. So first of all, um, with the central banks of the government pushing out digital currency and digital assets in general, I think that definitely bring people's attention to what digital assets are, what what it means, how do I use a wallet. How do I, you know, transact? Um, because DSAP, the underlying tech, is still blockchain, although it is arguably very, very different from from crypto um, as we know it. Just because right, one is um, extremely centralized and one is the opposite. Um, so I think it is good in terms of user education um, to a certain extent, and then I think people are going to start realizing that um, now if DSAP truly eliminated cash, then every transaction, everything they do will be recorded somewhere. And, you know, and it, that might prompt people to think about decentralization or, you know, having some sort of privacy, even though the expectation, the level of expectations um, of privacy in China and, and the States or the rest of the world is perhaps a little different, but I think it will get people to start thinking um, about, about what that all means. So I think it, it is not going to in immediate um, headwind, um, but, but, we, but we shall see. Um, 
And I think people here are looking into Bitcoin as more of a alternative asset investment um, and import and opportunity for yield as well. Um, so less so on the kind of decentralization um, aspect yet. Um, but we have seen a lot of um, family offices and high net worth individuals looking to Bitcoin as uh, either uh, inflation hedge or store of wealth or, you know, just um, another portfolio diversification to add. And the case for it is so strong that nobody can ignore it. And, you know, we've seen just every day there, there are new institutions coming out saying they're backing Bitcoin, right? Like I think yesterday was BlackRock and, and who knows uh, who's going to come out today and tomorrow. So I think that everyone is definitely paying attention to, to crypto um, on its own and then maybe just, just curious about how um, digital currency will work. Yeah. And so when you think through uh, the adopters of this, there's obviously the institutional world and then there's the retail world. Uh, I know you guys have a ton of institutional clients. Talk a little bit about um, kind of what you're hearing from that crowd as we see uh, the prices of the liquid assets go up and many of these businesses do pretty well. Yeah. um, I think on the institutional side, um, most of our clients, um, they are of the view that they're, they're holding at least Bitcoin. For the, for the long run. And um, given it's a broad bull market, so a lot of people who are investing in DeFi, et cetera, um, has been um, benefiting a lot from it this year. So everyone is um, quite active. Um, so trading Bitcoin and some DeFi coins on top of it, that's what we've seen mostly. Um, and there are new money coming in every day from traditional finance space. So I guess the institutions in the traditional sense, um, and they're mostly looking to, to purchase Bitcoin um, uh, to add to their portfolios. And I think on the retail side, um, as we've seen where there's record signups for Binance and Coinbase and our own um, platform has also seen an increase in user signups. I think they're definitely paying attention and um, and looking to get into space as well. I think just the, the whole market sentiment, um, it, first of all, it feels a lot more healthier, like a lot healthier than what transpired in 2017, I would say. Um, but this growth, this rally again is, is incredible. So um, we feel really good about this year, um, and hopefully we will see more people uh, accepting Bitcoin um, and come into the space. Absolutely. What's been the biggest surprise for you over the last, you know, call it year or so, as we saw this public health crisis throughout the globe, uh, we saw governments and elected officials step in with, you know, incredible amount of monetary stimulus. Um, you're literally on the other side of the world. I think uh, I've talked way too much and uh, basically bored the hell out of people here of what's going on in the United States. But uh, how has that been uh, in the last year? And what's been most surprising uh, in Asia? Well, yeah, it's completely um I don't even know where to start just seeing where the states, <laughs> you know, I spent almost a decade in, in, in the U.S., so I, I felt like it was my second home, and it was just really um, 
quite devastating to, to see it become like this. And uh, whereas um, I guess where the outbreak started is actually my hometown. So my parents are from Wuhan and I was almost on my way to go back there for Chinese New Year last year. So again, right, that's also my home base. So I felt like just um, quite um, sad to, to, to see the world like this last year. And, but you can see the, the level of centralized governmental control um, here in China and just putting everything in place immediately. Um, Wuhan was shut down from Jan 23rd until April 8th. Um, everyone stayed at home. Um, for the rest of the uh, metropolitans in China, we all stayed at home for at least um, a month, I think. And then and then, you know, everybody reacted really fast um, and then got got the situation under control. And within China, we're basically free to travel. We were free to travel since May last year, pretty much. So it's been a, it's been normal for us for, for almost a year now. Um, and then I think I remember in, in February and March, um, a lot of my friends in New York were just like, oh, you should, you should come back, um, which I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> and um, and then you just compare the the level, you know, the, the, the policies and procedures that different governments put out. Um, you compare that and, and you see where we are now. Um, you know, I, I I don't want to comment further on on that, but um, but but yeah, it's definitely um, different world, uh, um, very different um, here versus the states. For sure. Um, when when you kind of talk to your friends in the United States, uh, is there anything that really sticks out to you as um, maybe what crypto investors believe in the Western world that you see as a uh, being in direct contrast to what's going on in the East, and, and not so much what's being built or uh, kind of what's being adopted, but just are there philosophical differences? Are there uh, kind of mindset differences? Maybe there's even like v- perspectives of the world in terms of the West believes that you know Bitcoin is going to be the uh, successful thing, and the East thinks something else. Is there anything that jumps to mind as to what's the contrasting uh, kind of mental frameworks people use in the different regions? I would think the underlying rationale um, feels quite universal across the globe. Um, people believe in Bitcoin um, for, you know, as, as a store of value, as a um, store of value that's better than gold, perhaps. And um, people, especially the younger generation, likes the idea of, of a complete new asset class. And um, so I think that on that level, it is quite universal. Um, but I do think people perhaps approach it from a, from slightly different um, aspects of it. Uh, people in the Western world, they value decentralization um, more. Um, I actually like to compare decentralization with privacy. Um, it's not a necessity. People don't need it. But, um, but for some people, right, it is really important and they really value it. Um, I think that that concept is perhaps a little weaker here in in Asia or in China. So I think people still approach it from more of a financial, um, you know, or, or yield opportunity versus in, in the States, perhaps people really believe more so in its design and its original vision, um, et cetera. But I, I do think um, 
people are are investing in it, um, be it retail institutions, be it be it um, the Western world or Asia. Um, they they all have. Um, they, people really are believing in in Bitcoin, and I, I do think that we have found market validation for that narrative. Absolutely. Uh, what's the thing you're most excited about in the crypto industry right now? I just just so much. I think every day um, you wake up to see um, a different price level, you know, news from um, more. Um, just tr- traditional heavyweights coming into space and and um, kind of and telling that you, that you were right all this time, right? I think a lot of people did a 180, <laughs> um, different banks or different um, asset managers um, who really dismissed uh, the idea of of our innovative new asset class um, maybe three or four years ago, right? And, I, and it's just really incredible to, to see that. And I think there's still a really long way to go. And that's what really excites me. Um, some people ask me, you know, where do you think is going to be the big thing in five years? And I, and I really believe it's going to be something that we haven't seen yet today, right? Just the speed of innovation. Um, you, we, I don't even know what's going to come out of the space in, in a month's time, let alone five years. Um, I think that's what really drives us to continue to be innovative in this space to adapt to the newest market trends to give users what they want um, and to really grow with the industry absolutely before i let you go i just ask everyone the same three questions uh the first is what is the most important book that you've ever read that's um that's a great question um i grew up reading a lot of uh literature I guess Chinese ones, and after I learn English, English ones as well. Um, but I, I'll throw out a book that I really liked and have read a, a couple times. It's called Fortune's Formula. It is about a bunch of mathematicians and and people working on information systems, information theories, and, and then try to game the casino, so to speak, by playing back blackjack, counting cards, etc. It's it's a really fun story, but I think most importantly, uh, it is about trading. Um, it talks about the likes of John Kelly, um, Kelly criteri- Criterion. Is, um, it, it really taught me how to size my bets, um, either on, you know, sports betting or um, trading in general. And then talks about Ed Thorpe, which is a, le- uh, you know, a legend um, and who is a mathematician and turned into um, basically um, discovered or, or approved Black Scholes by himself on, you know, equity options pricing, and then started his own hedge fund and made incredible returns over the years. So it's a, it's a great story um, that uh, married um, mathematicians into the finance world, and there's some like mafia and casino games behind it. So it's a great read, but I learned a lot um, from from it. So, you know, recommend yeah. everybody to, to take a read. N- n- nobody's recommended that one before. That's a great suggestion. <laughs> uh, yeah, second- it's probably the, 
the math uh, nerd in me who, who <laughs> likes that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, second question is about sleep. Uh, it comes from our friends over at Eight Sleep. They've got a thermoregulated bed that essentially you can make it really hot or really cold. Uh, I used to sleep like six or seven hours or really five or six hours. Um, and then I started sleeping on it. I sleep on it like it's ice cold, uh, literally, uh, you know, as cold as you can basically make it. And uh, I sleep like a baby now, eight, nine hours a night. I am a full-on convert to the sleep religion. Uh, what is your sleep schedule? Wow. Do you use any sort of uh, sleep products or aids or anything? I think I'm blessed in the way that um, I just passed out and I need six hours of sleep and I'm good to go kind of. So, yay. Um, but um, I, I do like co-therapy actually. So the another book I was going to mention was called uh, What Doesn't Kill You, uh, make, make You Stronger in a sense. And it's um, talks about breathing exercise and co-therapy that triggers um, a lot of the revolutionary strength that we had. But lost because um, we use technology to make our lives so comfortable, right? We cannot endure heat or cold anymore. Um, we, you know, we're always full. Actually, we have excess like energy intake every day. And um, that book really uh, walks you through how you can trigger a lot of that um, strength that, that better your immune system and, and get better sleep um, and just better um, energy level, actually. So um, I sleep well, perhaps due to the co-therapy or, or other things or, you know, exercise. Um, but, you know, I want to check out that, um, that, that thermal badge. I used to do cryotherapy in New York, in New York, but I don't really see that, um, anymore in Asia, but I really liked it as well. Yeah. Eight sleep. They are uh, fantastic. I highly, highly, see. I don't know if they ship to China, but, uh, but they are fantastic. Uh, third right. question <laughs> is a little bit more fun and you'll get to ask me one to finish up, uh, aliens. Are you a believer or a non-believer? Believer. Um, I guess from a Why? statistic, you know, statistics point of view, right? There are so many galaxies, planets, stars. Um, it is unlikely that we don't, ha we don't see another, um, I guess, form of life or aliens um, and in that sense. But um, but I'm not sure like if actually going back to, to the book question, there's another book that I would also recommend here. It's called Three Bodies. It's actually written by, um, I'm sure you've, you've read it, right? It's uh, written by a Chinese author, one of the best sci-fi books I've read and the dark forest theory, um, it is, from a game three point of view, right? I think if there are aliens, either, you know, they're a lower form of like lower intelligence and we found them and, you know, we'll, we're going to, you know, annihilate the, that or one day someone who's with higher intelligence is going to discover us, then I guess, well, <laughs> that's the end for us. Um, but I, I do believe in, in the dark forest um, theory. We actually see that within DeFi uh, and in the DeFi gas war. So that's also an interesting detour. But yeah, that's that's my answer to the question. I, I love it. I'm a, I'm a believer too. So I hear you. Uh, you could ask me one question to finish up. What do you got for me? Um, so so many actually. I guess you know you've been in this space and you've been a Bitcoin believer for. Um, you know, the, one of the biggest advocates we, we've seen in space. Um, just throw one question back at you, right? What, what excites you the most? What gets you going? 
I think that we are all drastically underestimating how important it is that uh, these Wall Street institutions are showing up. Um, and I don't look at it from like I'm cheering on the financialization of Bitcoin specifically as much as it is uh, the more that these financial institutions say we like Bitcoin, we want to hold Bitcoin, the less likely uh, nation state attacks against Bitcoin will be. Um, and so I think that in some weird way, Wall Street is protecting Bitcoin um, over uh, over time. And so I think that's a really, really you know kind of fascinating way to uh, to, to think through uh, the game theory on a global basis. You know, does this thing survive? And I tend to uh, be an optimist. I tend to agree that uh, you know Bitcoin will end up kind of uh, ascending to global reserve status uh, over a period of time, which is uh, pretty cool to think about and watch. Yeah, awesome. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you did. I figured you did. Um, all right, Anvil, where can we send people to find you on the internet or, uh, or or find out more about what you guys are building? Sure, you can um, find more information about Amber Group and our product suite on ambergroup.io, our website. You can follow us on, on Twitter at ambergroup underscore io. You can follow me on Twitter as well at underscore Annabelle Huang. Uh, we're on Medium, we're on Telegram, um, we're on the website, email us, drop us a note. Awesome. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. We'll have to do it together in the future. Thanks for having me again. Great chatting with you. <laughs>